So we are continuing in our series, God Has a Name. Obviously, uh, if you were listening to the video, it's Exodus 34, um, verses 6 to 7. And so uh, we're kind of walking through this place in Scripture where God reveals his name. Now, Luke talked about last week. It's not the very first time that God announces that his name is is Yahweh. Uh, He does it with with Moses earlier at the burning bush. He says, uh, I am who I am. Right? And Luke unpacked this idea that then uh, the name Yahweh really is, is kind of taking I am who I am and, and turning it into he is who he is. You know, kind of that idea of, of so we wouldn't say I am who I am, right? When talking about God, we would say he is who he is, and that is Yahweh. Um, and so Luke talked about that last week. I would encourage you, if you want to know more specifically about Yahweh, about that name, there, I would go and, and listen back on that sermon. You can find it on Facebook Live. I have a copy of it on MP3 because we, re- we record these. Um, one of these days, I'll actually put them up on the website. But uh, um, yeah, so, uh, but they are, they are, like, I can get you a copy of that if you want to listen to it or there's Facebook Live. Um, but this morning, we're going to be looking at, so let's, let's go ahead. Let's turn to Exodus 34, um, verses 6 uh, to 7. All right, it says, Uh, in, In verse six, the Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to thousands, to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion and sin, but I do not excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren. The entire family is affected even children in the third and fourth generations. Now, we are going to literally walk through, unpack every single one of those statements through this series. And I think they deserve to be unpacked because what we think about God, and Luke again talked about this last week, what we think about God matters, right? It matters greatly. If we believe that, you know, God is just some benevolent grandfather in the sky, it's going to change not only the way we live our lives, but the way we live our lives towards God, right? If we think of God as this tyrant who wants, who's waiting to hit me over the head, you know, with, with, with a bunch of rules or, you know, with a stick if he gets mad at me, right? That's going to affect the way that I live my life. That's going to affect my view of God. And so when we say God, we need to know what we mean by that because lots of people use that word, but I'm not entirely sure that even on a regular basis, we're on the, like, people are on the same page, right? You hear people say, oh, I believe in God. Okay, which one? <laughs> you know, like, what, what God do you believe in? Is it the same God that I believe in, right? And so this morning, so last week we looked at Yahweh, but this morning we're looking at the Lord, the God, <laughs> the Lord God. So we're looking at Yahweh again. <laughs> so last week we looked at Yahweh, this week we look at Yahweh. But we look at the phrase Yahweh Elohim. Yahweh Elohim. So in Hebrew, like right, okay, let's think about like when we write something down. How do we want how do we emphasize that something is important? Underline, Underline all caps, bold. right? Like bold. Like, I knew a guy who always wrote in all caps, and so you never knew whether he was just really angry. So it was always kind of funny to just imagine him yelling everything, you know, like, how are you? You know, like, you always write. Right, so we do things like that. All caps, we can italicize it, we can underline it. Um, what's that? 
lots of exclamation points, right? Um, we have emojis now. Like, there's all sorts of ways, right, that we can emphasize a point to say, we really mean this, or this is really important. Like, focus in on, on this, right? Well, they didn't, they didn't italicize in, in Hebrew. I guess I should write it this way. They didn't italicize in Hebrew. They didn't underline in Hebrew. If you wanted to emphasize something and say, take a look, because this is really important. You need to remember this. They would say it twice. And they would say it twice because it was really important. Sorry, you see what I did there? Okay. Anyway, we actually, I think we do actually do it sometimes, at least I do, in speaking. We might say something twice, maybe two different ways, a little bit, but we'll repeat it. Right? And so that's the way Hebrew language works. So when you see something emphasized, that when you, as you're reading the Bible, this is just a you know, tip on reading the Bible. When you see something repeated, note to the reader, this is very important. Right? So we have here the very first words as, as God reveals his name. He says, Yahweh, Yahweh Elohim, which means Yahweh, God. Right? That's, so the word Elohim is really kind of where we're going to focus this morning on why it's important then that we have Yahweh and then Yahweh Elohim. So why is it important? Um, let's, let's, um, yeah, why is it important that God emphasizes his name and that he is Yahweh Elohim? All right, and I think this sermon has made me nervous. <laughs> and it made me nervous for a reason. It's like some weird, crazy stuff we're about to dive into. For some of you this morning, like everything that we talk about, you're going to be like, yeah, uh, yeah, whatever, you know, like, I'm, yeah, that makes sense to me. Uh, for others of us, it's probably going to be like, wait a second, hold on, this, this, this is like a little bit crazy. Like, but I hope I can, in a few, you know, hopefully a few minutes, make my case here, or at least whet your appetite to explore this idea of, of Elohim, because it is important that it is Yahweh Elohim, because there is not just one Elohim. There are many. Or you could say there's not just one God. There are many. Now, some of you are about ready to run out of the room. Let me, again, unpack this for you. The word Elohim is not God's name. God's name is Yahweh, and he is an Elohim. Now, you're like, he's talking crazy talk, Except we just read Psalm 86. And if this will work, you'll remember that <laughs> as we read Psalm 86. Sorry, do you know what? I've, I need to be better at remembering what my slides are. Um, so these are all different versions showing us how uh, it's in the Hebrew it's Yahweh Elohim. But sometimes, like if you're reading out of the NIV, basically is what I wanted to point out. If you're reading out of the NIV, it will read slightly different, right? The Lord, the compassionate and gracious God. But in the Hebrew, it is the Lord God. Like that's, that's a pretty literal um, version of it. There we go. This is where I want to be. Among the gods, there is none like you, Lord. No deeds can compare with yours. We read that this morning. <laughs> and I don't know if any of you went like, wait a second, what, what is that? That's what it says. It's the word Elohim. Now, the next one. Now this one, uh, again, so I wanted to point out, then we had God revealing his name there in Psalm 82. But you are a Lord, but you, O Lord, are compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. So that's why we read, if you remember, we actually read that same Psalm last week, but we read it again this week because I wanted us to see, like, hold on a second, what is Psalm 86 saying? 
There are many, many gods? Now, if that isn't weird enough, let's read Psalm 82. Now, again, before you start throwing stones at me, just, just bear with me a few minutes, all right? God presides over heaven's courts. He pronounces judgment on the heavenly beings. That word is Elohim, okay? In the heavenly beings. How long will you hand down unjust decisions by favoring the wicked? Give justice to the poor and the orphan. Uphold the rights of the oppressed and the destitute. Rescue the poor and helpless. Deliver them from the grasp of evil people. But these oppressors know nothing. They are so ignorant. They wander about in darkness while the whole world is shaken to the core. I say, you are gods. You are children of the Most High. But you will die like mere mortals and fall like every other ruler. Rise up, O God, and judge the earth for all the nations belong to you. I don't know about you, but at first glance, when I read Psalm 86, when I read Psalm 82, this kind of was my, my reaction, right? You're like, excuse me? Wait, what is that? Is that I, this is new to me, right? So Psalm 82, right? When you read, we don't have to keep watching that, sorry. Um, <laughs> When you read something like, God presides over heaven's courts, he pronounces judgment on the, on the gods, your version may actually say gods. The New Living kind of, I think, is trying to help people understand that a bit more and says heavenly beings. So here's, here's what I want to say. All right, Elohim in the Hebrew is a generic term. It's a generic term. And, but what is it a generic term for? Well, it's not just a generic term for Yahweh, though it is sometimes used that way. It's a generic term for the spiritual beings, for those who live in the spiritual realm. So the first thing that may make us a little bit uncomfortable, for many of us who are, are Westerners, who grow up in a, in a very rationalistic world where um, not, not science, but scientism, that belief that everything under the sun can be explained by science, and if it can't, then it isn't real, right? We kind of live in that world, in that bubble, and it's very difficult for us to imagine sometimes that there could be a spiritual realm. Again, for some of you, you may be going, no, totally get it, totally understand, yeah, completely. You know, like, again, it depends sometimes on the culture that we've grown up in, on the things that we just take as obvious <laughs> and, and clear. But I think for many of us who have, who have grown up, again, in that Western sort of rationalistic, sort of explain everything away world, when we start reading about spiritual beings and we start seeing that the Old Testament actually talks about this idea of, of gods being something that is real, that exists, it begins to make us uncomfortable. But I wanted to just quickly run through a few, uh, a few more passages. So Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 8 says, When the Most High assigned lands to the nations, when he divided up the human race, he established the boundaries of the peoples according to the number in his heavenly court. We get this idea that God has a heavenly court. That somewhere along the way in history, God gave rule and authority to those in the heavenly realms over certain areas. And they were to worship God and to point others to worship God, right? In Psalm 82, what is, what is God mad at? He's mad at 
those heavenly beings because they're not pointing to God. They're not pointing to Yahweh. They're pointing to themselves and they're taking the, the worship for themselves and they're destroying humanity, right? And he's saying, you need to stop it. You need to be about justice and mercy and kindness. You need to be pointing to me, but they didn't do that, right? So we read in Deuteronomy 32, verses 16 and 17, um, that the people of Israel stirred up God's jealousy. It says, by worshiping foreign gods, they provoked his fury with detestable deeds. They offered sacrifices to demons. It's one of only two places in the Old Testament that word is used, by the way, uh, demons, which are not God. To gods they had not known before. To new gods only recently arrived. To gods their ancestors had never feared. I think we have something going on here. And that the, the, the Old Testament and the New Testament too, our Bible recognizes that there is a spiritual realm. And that there are little g, for, you know, if we're writing it in English, right? Little g, gods in this world. And they exercise a level of power, a level of control in the world that is not good. <laughs> um, if they were exercising it rightly, maybe it would be good, but it is not good. So these Elohim are, are their spiritual beings. Now, for some of us, we have, we have language for this that makes us much, maybe much more comfortable, right? And I've been specifically looking at these passages that said gods and not necessarily going to the New Testament or even like just kind of just I wanted to unsettle us a little bit. Angels and demons, cherubim, seraphim, Satan. We use all of these words, right? And, and those are words we're probably a little more comfortable with. But I think the Old Testament, again, uses this word Elohim. And again, it is, it is a designation of the type of being it is. They are something of the spiritual realm. I think when we hear uh, this word, right? Um, just a couple of other, I'm sorry, the beginning of this is going to be more of a lecture. I probably should have said that at the beginning. But look, we will get to more of like application. It's just one of those, I think we kind of need to unpack how we see this unfold in, in God's word. So in Exodus chapter 12, all right, this is another interesting place where we find Yahweh and the gods of this world interplaying. Okay, and again, in the New Testament, we're going to find the same concept. We'll get to this later, but we're going to find the same concept. Paul talks about the prince of this world, right? The powers uh, of this world, Colossians, Ephesians. These are places that talk um, very directly about the spiritual world and the powers of the spiritual world. But here we find Yahweh exercising his power over the gods. Because here's the thing. God may be an Elohim, a spiritual being, but he is not any Elohim. He is the Elohim. All the other gods are created, but God, Yahweh, is not. There is no equal and there is no rival to God. That's one thing I think we clearly see throughout the Old Testament being unpacked, is there may be other spiritual beings, there may be other gods, if we want to use that, again, Elohim, that word, but they in no way are of equal to Yahweh. And so, uh, in Exodus chapter 12, verses 11 uh, to 12, we read, these are your instructions for eating this meal. So this is the Passover, right? We've had the plagues. The plagues, um, if you remember, the, if you remember that, that story, there are how many plagues? Plagues? 
10. Sorry, that's, a, that's like one of those like terrible Bible trivia questions where you feel like you should know it, but then if you don't, it's, it's a no-when question. Sorry, I apologize. I shouldn't do that to you. There are 10 plagues. And what's interesting about these 10 plagues is that there are three sets of three, so there are nine plagues, and then you have the very last plague, the 10th plague, which is like the worst of all, right? Okay, so in Egypt, Pharaoh was seen as a god. He was as a god, but actually one of his main purposes was to mediate between man and the gods. He was the one who was in charge of making sure all the gods were happy, of like running the country to, you know, to the way that the gods would be, would be okay with. Like he was a deity, but he was also had the job of like keeping all the other deities happy so that the order of Egypt would go well. Because right, if you make these gods mad, they're very wrathful, they're very angry, and they will punish you. Right? So what happens in the plagues? Well, we have three sets of three. It's one of these here, again, interesting Bible study note, is that every for, for these plagues, in plague one, plague four, and plague uh, eight, <laughs> get my count, no, seven, math, I, I didn't get a degree in math. Um, so God instructs Moses to go visit Pharaoh at the water. In plague, you know, and, and then in the second plague, in the second plague, in the fifth plague, and in the eighth plague, God commands Moses to go into Moses, to Pharaoh's court and to speak to him. And then in the third plague, the sixth plague, and the ninth plague, they just happen. There's no, there's no like, hey, uh, Pharaoh, you should probably change your mind about that. They just happen, right? And what we find in each of these plagues is that there are three main realms. So people in, in the ancient world would have viewed the world uh, the gods through three main realms, right? You have uh, the gods of the water, you have the gods of the earth, and you have the gods of the sky. And what you see here is Yahweh exercising his power over each one of these realms. As you read the plagues, you're going to find him messing, God, God unsettling the water realm. You're going to find God unsettling the land realm, right? You've got boils, you've got flies, you've got locusts. I mean, like, you know, you're going to find... Um, you know, darkness come over the world, right? Like God is exercising his power over the deities, but also over Pharaoh. Egypt is now unsettled. Who's the one who really has control? And so in this final plague in Exodus 12, 11 to 12, uh, Moses is instructed are given instructions. God says, these are your instructions for eating this meal. Be fully dressed, wear your sandals, and carry your walking stick in your hand. Eat the meal with urgency, for this is the Lord's Passover. On that night, I will pass through the land of Egypt and strike down every firstborn son and firstborn male animal in the land of Egypt. I will execute judgment against all the gods, the Elohim of Egypt, for I am the Lord. In Exodus chapter 15, then, um, the people of Israel sing a song after they have um, escaped from Egypt. Who is like you among the gods, they sing. O Lord, gracious in holiness, awesome in splendor, performing great wonders. You raised your right hand and the earth swallowed our enemies. Who is like you among the gods? And that's what we begin to see in this book of Exodus is that there is one Yahweh, Yahweh, Elohim, and he is over all others. And so Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, in Exodus 18, uh, verses 10 to 11, says, Praise the Lord, 
For he has rescued you from the Egyptians and from Pharaoh. Yes, he has rescued Israel from the powerful hand of Egypt. I know that the Lord is greater than all other gods because he rescued his people from the oppression of the proud Egyptians. And in the story of the people of Israel, we find God over and over exercising his power, his dominion, and his authority over the spiritual realm. And so the people sing, Psalm 96, 4 to 5. Great is the Lord, he is most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. The gods of other nations are mere idols, but the Lord made the heavens. And here begins, we see, we begin to see that tension in the Bible that says that the gods or the, the that idolatry is something and nothing at the same time. And we're going to unpack that in a moment, but we begin to see that in this psalm. And then in the very next psalm, 97, 7 to 9, those who worship idols are disgraced. All who brag about the, their worthless gods, for every god must bow to him. And maybe yours says, for the gods will worship him. Um, Jerusalem has heard and rejoiced, and all the towns of Judah are glad because of your justice. O Lord, for you are exalted far above all gods. Elohim. It's that word again. All right, and again, I just, as we, as we move on because of time, I just want to say that, that what we're dealing with, I want to be very clear. I want to be as clear as I possibly can. There is one Yahweh Elohim. He is the God over all gods, over all the earth, over all creation. He created spiritual beings. And when he made them, Colossians 1, uh, 15, I believe it is, you know, that he, when he made creation, it was good. Somewhere along the line. And we don't get all the answers. And I think that's what makes us so uncomfortable about this topic. Is it's like, we want to know, where does all this come from? Divine counsel? What is that? You know, we read Job chapter 1, and all of a sudden we're like, I don't even understand what's going on there. And, and most scholars go, I don't fully understand what's going on there. You know, exactly. But we know enough to kind of wet our appetite to go there. There's something more that we can't see going on in this world. And the Bible gives us the language for that. The language, those, those words of like other gods or idols or demons, like all of that is the language that we are given by God to use to describe this realm that we can't see, but yet we know, we sense, and we feel it exists. And maybe in our Western, again, rationalistic world, those times are few and far between, but we experience them. I think of for me personally, like going to Haiti for the very first time, the only time, that was an eye-opening experience. There is a very real, you know, it was one of those, I could, I could dismiss maybe more easily the spiritual realm from where I lived very comfortably before, but then I went there, and it's right there in front of you, everywhere, and you can feel it. You can feel it. There's something about it, it just sits, it's like it's not right, and it makes you uncomfortable. Or I think about Alyssa and I, we, we had the chance to go to Taiwan. And you walk into a temple in Taiwan, and you can feel it. It is the weirdest, like, it's just an uncomfortable feeling. There is something there. There is something present. Right? And so I think just even from, like, an anecdotal standpoint, when we go into these places, like, and maybe there are even places like that in Galway that you know of, where you just sense and feel there is something there. You know, we had, a, we had a neighbor when we lived in Drogheda. 
And he was deep into the occult. A lot of New Age stuff, deep into the occult. And let me tell you, some of the stuff that guy said, scary. Really scary. Things that he said he experienced, things that he said he felt. He was terrified by the things that he was experiencing. It's real. And the Bible gives us the language to talk about it. Yahweh, Elohim, then, is a declaration of God's uniqueness and superiority. All the other gods are created beings, but Yahweh is the uncreated, unrivaled, unparalleled king of all kings. So then, I think it begs the question, and again, we're still a little bit into lecture land here, but, uh, but I think we're, we're starting to move towards uh, application here. But it begs the question, how do we understand our relationship to God and the gods? Because let's face it, there's a lot of competing gods out there, whether that be you know, Islam or Hinduism or some forms of, of Buddhism or Jainism or you know, like Taoism, Taoism. I mean, like, right? There is no limit you know, almost to the amount of, of claims that are made about God and about the gods and, and worshiping whether it be many gods or one god or, you know, like, there's a lot of things that we come in contact with. And so there really are three major ways that people, human beings, think about God and the gods. All right, so the, um, the first one is, is polytheism, right? So what's polytheism? As you can see from the chart, there are many gods. There's many mountains, right? And everybody just has to find their way up one of these mountains, okay? So everybody is trying to find their way uh, to God, and, and maybe you do it through, um, you know, Zeus or Baal or Chamash, like these are all ancient, uh, ancient deities, or, or you know, um, so polytheism is, is one way to look at it. Another way, universalism, right? This is probably the way, the way that uh, our, our culture probably likes to think about things, right? There's, you know, if there is a God, there's one mountain, we're all climbing up a bit, everybody kind of just finds their own path up the mountain, and in the end, we all come to God, whoever he is. Um, Right? And how do we really know? Because every religion has different claims. Um, the problem is, is like nobody actually agrees uh, on who God is, what he's like, and, and all of these things. Anyway, we could get into how Western imperialism has um, created universalism. It's not just some obvious thing. But we won't do that. Um, so universalism, right? So that's a way to do it. Now, that is not the traditional Christian way of, you know, either polytheism or universalism are neither one a traditional way of, of looking at God, right? As Christians, we um, understand God as monotheism. There is one God, right? There is one God, okay? And so traditionally, we would look, uh, uh, think about monotheism as this. There's one God, so there's a mountain. God's on the top of it. There's one way up the mountain, right? Jesus, that's it, um, okay? But, and then there are all of these false gods, okay? So Judaism, Islam, spiritualism, Buddhism, Hinduism, you know, whatever, like, they're, you know, so all of that is all fake. But here's my question, what if, what if it wasn't? What if all that stuff wasn't fake? What if there really is a God, and each one, you know, again, an Elohim, at the top of each one of these mountains? Personally, I'm not convinced there's not. that there is something more than just human ideas behind these re religions. There's actually a spiritual force behind them. And just like a good politician, 
They'll, give, they'll tell you all the promises you want to hear. They'll tell you, if you come and follow this way to God, all of your dreams will come true. I just want, you know, we we're talking about movie quotes last week. I just wanted to quote Napoleon Dynamite there, you know, vote for Pedro and all of your wildest dreams will come true. That went way over most people's head because I'm a dumb American. Um, anyway, you know what I mean, like politicians, right? So think of it like that. They make all the promises. Then what happens when they get into office? I don't know. I always heard my dad, like, ruin them the country. You know, that's what, <laughs> you know, like, like um, you know, that's kind of, I think that's kind of more of a, a way to look at it, is that they make a lot of false promises. But what happens when we get to the top of that mountain? We find they were all hollow and false. That they were lies? Maybe, maybe they had some truth in them, but they, they, were, they were lies. In the Ten Commandments, what we find is we find the very first two commandments. I could, I could ask again. Does anybody know the first two commandments? But I won't. The first commandment is... I have no other gods before me. Why does he need to say that? Because the second commandment that we tend to roll into the first, but I'm not sure we should, is you shall have no other idols before me. You know, like you shall have no, you do not make an idol. There you go. That's it. Don't make idols. Paraphrasing. Um, right? So don't worship any other gods. Don't make idols. Well, why couldn't he have just rolled that into one? <laughs> like, I think because idols are to God, are to gods, like shadows are to people. All right, so this is the way I think we should look at idolatry. Okay, like when we walk into, say, if we walked into a temple right now, there might be a statue made of wood or a statue made of metal. And you know what? It's a piece of metal. It's a hunk of wood. But it doesn't mean there's not something behind that hunk of wood. It doesn't mean there's not something behind that hunk of metal ceramic, or whatever it's made of. And think about it like a shadow. The shadow that, you know, I'm not casting a shadow at the moment, but a shadow. Is it something? No. But is there something behind that shadow? Yes, very much so. And I think we should look at the, the, the idolatry and, and gods kind of in that way. Is the idol, and this is the way I actually think the Bible ultimately looks at it, is that in the Bible, it talks about idols or idols being nothing, right? We run into that, right? I read a psalm where it said idols are nothing, right? And you run, Paul says the very same thing, idols are nothing. Because they're a shadow of something. There's something that stands behind them. This is the tension, I think, that we see throughout Scripture. That idols are not the thing, but that they are the gateway to the thing. They, there is something standing behind it. That behind an idol lies a demon. And so Paul in 1 Corinthians, as he's trying to help these Corinthians, these people in Corinth process the way that they go about um, living their lives, because idolatry was everywhere in their life, right? I mean, so much of civic life involved temples and feasts and all of these kinds of things. And so as they're trying to figure out, how do I navigate this? Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 19 to 20. What am I trying to say? Am I saying that food offered to idols has some significance or that idols are real gods? No, not at all. I'm saying that these sacrifices are offered to demons, not to God, and I don't want you to participate with demons. Right? It's this tension. Idols are nothing, but yet behind it is something. And again, I was telling you this word Elohim, like I think in the New Testament it picks up on the language of, of demons. 
right? And again, it's, it's a spiritual realm. So demons, angels, cherubim, seraphim, like all that kind of stuff, they are Elohim. And Yahweh is Elohim, but he is the Elohim. He is Yahweh Elohim. And so I think, um, I, I, I made my point there. Let's, let's move on. So the better way, I think, to look at things is this way. That there is Yahweh, and there are other mountains, and you can climb other mountains. And there might even be a god at the top, or a demon, if you want to use that, that language that Paul uses there. But they're full of false promises, and they will not give what they offer. You know, there is... Uh, sorry, yeah. Um, what I wanted to say, sorry, I realize this is a bit disjointed today, is that, because as we're about to move kind of after, the lecture's almost over. Like, we're basically, we're at the end of our lecture here. Okay? Is that if you want to deep dive into this more, I, I, just a couple of resources. So interestingly, this book shares a title with this series, and it's not coincidence. Um, we're using this book kind of as the basis um, for the series. And um, I, think it's, I think overall it's a good book. I may have some quibbles here and there, uh, but, you know, like, I, anyway, it's a good book. Um, and so you'll find even that uh, these, all right, I, I ripped them out of the book, so, because I thought he made good charts. Um, so, so, yeah, that's a good book. If you want to go, like, really deep into this, there's a book called The Spiritual Realm by Michael Heiser. Um, it's, it's readable. It is readable, but it's not, it's not going to be the most exciting read you've ever had in your life. Um, but it's readable and understandable. Lots of footnotes to help explain things. Um, I think, again, overall, really good book on this topic. Um, the most accessible of, uh, well, more accessible than the Unseen Realm, and uh, is, is a book by Tom Wright called Spiritual and Religious. I think this is a very good one as, as well if you want, again, to dive into this topic of like idols or something and nothing, and that there are uh, other gods, Elohim, um, that again, we, we would probably in the West be more comfortable with angels and demons uh, and things. Um, so there you go. Lecture over. All right. Uh, if you want to talk more about this too, again, my, uh, we, can, we can have this conversation. Uh, so, so yeah. Um, so yeah, there are other gods and other ways, but at the top of the mountain is disappointment and destruction. There is one true God who alone is worthy of worship. And we don't climb the mountain to him. And this is where I think this chart is really helpful. We don't climb the mountain to him. See, all the other gods is like, work for it, work for it, work for it, work for it. Yet, we talked two weeks ago about the title for Jesus, Emmanuel, God is with us. This is where Christianity is different. Because we believe that God has come. Emmanuel has come. He didn't ask us to climb the mountain to him. He descended the mountain and came to us and made the way for us to come to him. And this, I think, is a huge difference between Christianity and other world religions. Going back to, to Psalm 82, I want to highlight this. The very end of Psalm 82 reads like this. Rise up, O God. And judge the earth, for all the nations belong to you. It is a prayer. It is a prayer that God would rise up 
and judge the nations, that justice would come. And again, as we unpack all of this, you know, maybe the very end of Exodus chapter 34, 7 makes you a bit uncomfortable about God judging uh, people and, you know, like, we'll get there. I promise we'll get there at the end. And I think it's good news, uh, actually, once we actually unpack it and look at it. Um, but here's a prayer. Rise up, O God. Judge the earth, for all the nations belong to you. God, there is injustice in this world. There are things that aren't right. Do something about it. And we find Jesus is the answer to Psalm 82. God has done something about it. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, Paul says this, in this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. Jesus is the answer to Psalm 82. Through his death, the powers were defeated. When they killed Jesus, they thought they had won, but they had not. They had not. Jesus rose from the dead and has become Christus victor, Christ the victor, who has won the victory. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, uh, John says it this way, But the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. So Jesus, again, as I said, is the answer to Psalm 82. And if all of this is real, if everything that I've talked about is real and Jesus came to be the answer, to win the victory, then I think it means that my heart is a spiritual battleground. That our world is a spiritual battleground. That there are literally spiritual powers fighting for my allegiance. Now, there used to be, a, well, there still is, a, a program in the States called Saturday Night Live. Okay. I know it's not, it's, you can find it here. It's not the easiest to find, although YouTube is a great place. Again, okay, I'm not recommending that. Maybe I shouldn't be, I, anyway. There used to be a guy, Dana Carvey, on Saturday Night Live, and he used to have this, this bit where he was the church lady, right? And he would always say, you know, everything would come back to, could it be Satan? You know, like, everything was about Satan. And I think it, in a way, it kind of revealed our view that we, we laugh at that. And I'm, and I'm not so sure, maybe, that we haven't gone the other way. Where everything that happens in this world has a rational expl explanation. That all evil in this world just has some rational explanation. But I think maybe we need to ask that, maybe we need to ask that question more often. Maybe not like Dana Carvey on Saturday Night Live, but maybe Satan is behind things more often than we think. That there is evil in this world that you just look at and you go, I don't even understand how a human being could do this to somebody else, right? And you can pick your low-hanging fruit there. You know, one of those things, you know those things that you look at and you go, I do not understand how a human being could do this to another human being. I mean, there's, there's a guy who put his child in a microwave. You know what, like, you go like, that is, no, humans don't do, like there is something else going on, all right? And I know that, I'm sorry, I apologize. I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have brought, I should have done something else there, but like, there is evil in this world that is real. And it's more than just human evil. That there are things at work. And we need to be careful. You know, the wisest king that ever lived, right? Solomon. We read about Solomon. Do you read the end of his life? 
He doesn't seem very wise. He's an idiot. The guy is, like, completely unravels his life. Completely unravels his life. Like, go and read. Like, if you read 1 Kings 11, your view of Solomon may change, right? Because you find that he chased after other gods. He married, like, what, 700 women? Like, you know, like, and they, again, political marriages, all this kind of stuff. But they brought their gods with them. And it says that he built temples for all their gods, and then he began worshiping in them. And so in 1 Kings 11, verse 2, we find that his heart longed for other gods. Let me see. It's 1 Kings 11. So I know we're like hitting a lot of, a lot of Bible verses here this morning. Um, but 1 Kings 11, chapter 2. Sorry, chapter 11, verse 2 gives this command then, because of Solomon. So now King Solomon loved many foreign women, besides Pharaoh's daughter. He married women from Moab, Ammon, uh, Edom, Sidon, and from the Hittites. The Lord had clearly instructed the people of Israel, you must not marry them, because they will turn your hearts to their gods. Yet Solomon insisted on loving them anyway. Now, why does God say, don't marry women from other countries, like for, for the Israelites there? It has nothing to do with their ethnicity. Absolutely nothing. It has to do with the gods that they worship. And so I, I just kind of wanted to say, like, for a moment, like, I just wanted to talk to you guys. Like, I think this stuff is real. I really do. I think this stuff is real. And we need to be careful. Like, there is a reason that, like, we've talked about, like, the idea of, like, interfaith marriages, like, not being the best. Um, that's why. Okay? Again, it's not because they're probably a terrible person or something like that. It has nothing to do with that. They may be a wonderful person. But if they turn your heart away from God, and if God is Yahweh Elohim, the most important thing, what, what good is that relationship, really? It's dangerous. It becomes dangerous. And so when we stand up here and say that, it's not like some like sort of you know, stuffy, you know, you, you know, like where I'm like, you know, I don't know. I feel like sometimes people have that idea of like, you know, the church is just, full, you know, rigid and, you know, angry and, you know, like, but oftentimes if you have kids, you know this, like rules are because you love your child, right? And so like when the Bible says things like this, like it's not willy-nilly, like, willy-nilly, I guess you can use that word. Um, there's a reason. And do you know what? The Bible talks about the occult. And you know, we tend in our culture to look at things like Ouija boards and tarot cards and laugh. It's just a silly joke. What if it wasn't? What if it wasn't? What if, it, what if it's actually a gateway to something? Do you want to really open that door? You can ask my neighbor who was deep into it. He wasn't sure he really wanted to have opened that door. Do you want to open that door? You don't, okay? That's the answer. No, you don't. You don't want to open that door. And so what does this mean then for the church? We tend to look at the church, I think, sometimes uh, as an optional extra. I mean, just being honest, we tend to look at church as like an optional extra, like as long as it suits me, I'll go. You know, if I don't have something else going on, you know, then I'll go or, or whatever. But, but again, what if, what if the church was more than just a, a, you know, a nice gathering where we have tea and coffee and we talk about how our week went, you know, or you you know, sit through me, you know, suffer through me or something like that for 40 minutes or so. Like, 
What if the church was more than that? You know, I talked about this idea of spiritual battle, right? We read all these psalms that looked at, like, cosmic battle. What if the church was, in some way, like, ground zero in, in the fight against spiritual evil in this world? And so when we come together, it's not just for, like, pleasantries. It's not just to listen to me babble, but in a way, we are fighting, waging war. And you're like, Stephen, you're crazy. You don't know what you're talking about. Uh, <laughs> But Paul in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 10 to 12, says this. God's purpose in all of this, so in the way he went about giving us salvation, God's purpose in all of this was to use the church to display his wisdom and its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. It's there. This was his eternal plan, which he carried out through Christ Jesus our Lord. Because of Christ and our faith in him, we can now come boldly and confidently into God's presence. When we meet together, we come boldly and confidently into God's presence. And when we meet together, because we are people literally in this room from every tribe, tongue, and nation. I mean, I don't, I'd have to count, but several continents are literally like seen in this room. We show the powers of this world that they will not win that Jesus will be victorious. And we worship Jesus as King, as Lord, as Savior. And so we display God's wonderful wisdom to not just the world around us, but the world we can't see. There's something powerful in meeting together while the powers predictably create narrow, monochrome societies, right? If you don't agree with us, get out. The church welcomes people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. The church witnesses to God's wiser way to be human. The church is God's witnesses, as one commentator says, to the power of the new creation, that God is making new, that unity is possible from people from every culture in Jesus. The rule of the powers is coming to an end as Jesus brings people together. And so together we fight. And at the end of Ephesians, Paul brings, up, brings this up. In chapter 6, verse 11 to 12, he says, Put on all God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against the strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood. And that's always a healthy reminder because people have got that wrong through, you know, in the church throughout history. Um, we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen realm, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. There are gods in this world. Angels, demons, but they're little g-gods. And this is what it means for us. There is one capital G God. Yahweh Elohim. And so for us, it means giving our lives to Jesus. Maybe we've been climbing other mountains. I don't know. You know, I think even if you've been a Christian for a long time, you may catch yourself in that place where you realize, like, maybe I've been climbing another mountain all of a sudden. Maybe I've been looking to something else and the false promises that it's made instead of Jesus. And so if that's you, like, that means, like, the biblical word is repent. It means turn around. It means, like, change the direction. Like, go towards Jesus. 
reorient your life towards Jesus. But maybe, maybe you've never like, been a follower of Jesus. Maybe this is like all new. You're like, I don't really even know what this means. It starts with believing that at the top of God's mountain is peace, the peace that you've been looking for. And Jesus has descended that mountain and become the way for us to find that peace. The powers are strong. Sin is strong. But Jesus, Jesus is stronger. He offers the true way to be human and is the true God who alone is worthy of worship. Jesus has come down and rescued us from the false promises of the other gods. The destructive, narrow-minded, graceless, and peaceless ways of the other gods. And he is calling you to come to him, the one true God, the sovereign Lord over all creation, including the powers. He's calling us to come to him and find life. Life under the true God, Yahweh Elohim. Now guys, I know that was a lot. And I didn't even start the timer on my phone, which was probably a mistake for you anyway. I don't know. But like, but guys, I hope that was helpful. I know it was a lot. I hope it was helpful. Because I, I, I want it for our church. I want us together to follow Jesus, to show the world what Jesus is like, to be with Jesus, to be like Jesus, and to do what he did in the world. Right? That's, that's what I want for us. I don't want us to be chasing after false promises and false gods but rather for us together to chase after the one true God. When we come to communion, it's right back there on the table, and anybody who's a follower of Jesus is welcome to take communion. Because it's at that point where we celebrate what Jesus has done for us, that he has come down the mountain, that he has made a way, that Emmanuel, God, is with us. And I said two weeks ago that God was with us, God is with us, and God will be with us. And at communion, we remember that, we're reminded of that, we focus on that. And I think in the act of communion, the Spirit meets us and ministers to us, showing us. And I think if we ask God, he will show us the ways that we've been looking to other things. He'll do that. And as we ask God, he will show us, I think, his goodness and reveal himself to us more and more as we seek after him. So I want to invite you to take, take communion with us. Um, just like you hear.